Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Azurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did the Lord not bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and I will strike down the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come and bring out my present or offering to set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. God, thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at Judges chapter 6 this morning, that you would... uh, Put on display your glory and that we would see how great you are in salvation and just how, uh, how you rescue us and how you save us. Um, and we would understand that to be a great and glorious thing. That we would see the work of your spirit in our lives. And that as we talk through and see uh, the call of Gideon and how you use him and his ups and downs. That we would see there's certainly uh, places that we relate to and that we can... Uh, we can understand and relate to our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in Judges chapter 6 today. And uh, we've, seen, we've talked before about what the, what the meaning of Judges is. At the very end, it says that there was no king in Israel. And so they did what was right in their own eyes. And so we know that if they do what's right in their own eyes, it's not going to go well for them. So the book of Judges, as we've said, is kind of this downward spiral of depravity of the people of Israel. However, what we also have learned is that God is a God who rescues and pursues people that are in a downward spiral of depravity. And so the goodness of God is continually displayed to us through the book of Judges where the people will rebel. And when people rebel, God gets angry. And whenever God gets angry, uh, he lets oppression come in from enemies. The people cry out to God uh, in distress or in repentance. And then God sends salvation through a judge or through some type of rescuer. Uh, and then peace is brought to the land for some measure of time, sometimes short, sometimes long. And then eventually that rescuer or that judge, whoever it is, dies. And whenever that happens, the people turn back over to rebellion and even worse. And so they're in this continual spiral, this continual cycle. And here, as we go into chapter 6, uh, nevertheless, it's the exact same. So as we're going through, we're going to see ups and downs, mostly downs, because uh, it is downward. Uh, But we always will keep seeing evidences of God's grace. And so here in this chapter, we're going to see, as we see evidence of God's grace, his grace in bringing salvation to the people of Israel, and therefore his grace as he brings salvation to to us. So starting in chapter 6, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, you can see the verse right above that in 531 from last week. They had rest for 40 years. And as we get into here, they did. As soon as uh, the judge dies or as soon as the deliverer dies, they, they go back to doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. So this was another oppressor. 
the hand of Midian empowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So Midian was so oppressive that they ran away and hid off in caves. And um, as they did this, they would take their food with them. You can see, uh, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of East would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour their produce as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel or nor sheep, nor ox, or donkey. And they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would uh, come like locusts in numbers. Both they and their camels uh, could not be counted, so that they laid waste uh, the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel, as we finish verse 6, cried out for help. Now, interestingly enough, as the people of Midian were doing this and oppressing them, and they ran off into the caves, we know as we see, <clears throat> as we keep going, that the people of Israel began to worship idols. They began to uh, worship Baal, and they began to worship the Azeroth. Well, these two things, these two lowercase gods, were thought to be protection and power. And we see that neither one of those are happening here in, in chapter six. Neither is their protection nor is their power. They're hiding in caves, and they're getting all their food st- stolen from by the Midianites. And so, uh, false gods will always do this. The things they promise, they never deliver on. And so the people of Israel are seeing this. And after the oppression happens, when you get into verse six, it says the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Now, this is generally, as we see uh, when the people of Israel cry out for help, this is generally thought of to be the sign of repentance whenever some type of deliverer, some type of judge, some type of rescuer will come in. But as we see this in, in this particular chapter, when they cry out, this also happens in chapter 10, uh, but whenever they cry out for repentance, we can discern here, it's, it's, it's I think right for us to construe as we look at this cry out for repentance, that this repentance is not genuine. Uh, the reason why it's not genuine is because when they cry out for repentance, instead of saying, the Lord saying, I hear your cries, I'm going to send a deliverer to you. He doesn't send a deliverer, he sends a prophet. He sends an unnamed prophet to them. And the prophet does not come and say, everything's going to be fine now. Somebody's going to come and rescue. Instead, the prophet comes. And as the prophet comes, he comes to them and preaches to them and tells them uh, how the Lord is good, has been good to them and that they haven't obeyed. And so when we see this, uh, it's, I think it's right for us to construe that this repentance that they have has not been genuine. And if it had been genuine, it wouldn't make sense for a prophet to come. It would make more sense for a, a, a rescuer to come. So in this kind of unfinished sermon, it's not necessarily a finished sermon that the prophet comes. And that's in verse 7 through 10. He finishes by saying, you haven't obeyed my voice. And so as he says, you haven't obeyed my voice. And he goes into this call of Gideon. It doesn't say between verse 10 and 11 that they said, oh, he's right. Let's burn all of our idols and let's get rid of everything. It just goes straight into the call of Gideon. It seems like that there is no change at all. There's no repentance recorded whatsoever. And so here overflows for us even more the picture of of mercy of God. No repentance is kind of recounted. No extension of grace or forgiveness has been given by God. And so he still sends a redeemer. He still sends a rescuer despite no repentance, which gives us even a greater picture of how good God is and this, how gracious he is in extending salvation, not just to the Israelites, but even to us, that even when there is no repentance, he grants them salvation. He grants them a rescue. So here we see uh, in verse 11, as that finishes, that we just go straight into the narrative of where the angel of the Lord comes. Now, 
I want to go back to 7 through 10 and take a look at this sending of this prophet. So they cry out for help. In verse 7 it says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the county of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. He sends a prophet. At first we should notice that the sending, as I said, of a preacher or a prophet isn't exactly what they were asking for. They were oppressed and they, they wanted someone more like a soldier to come. And so God says, okay, here's a prophet. Um, Dale Davis, he's a, uh, a commentator. He says, God sending a prophet to Israel would be like a stranded motorist calling for a garage for assistance and the garage sending a philosopher instead of a mechanic. Not much help, right? Not much help at all. Meaning Israel wanted a rescuer, a soldier, a fighter to come free them from the oppression of the Midianites. Instead, God sends them the prophet. And the reason why he sends them the, pro- the prophet is because he wants them to know just how bad their sin is first. And they don't know it. They don't understand it before he saves them. Yahweh, or as when we see in all caps, L-O-R-D, that's the, uh, the tetragrammaton or the, the, the word Yahweh, um, I, the I am, whenever we see that, Yahweh wants them to be sure that they know why they're oppressed. He wants them to be sure to know why they're oppressed, which helps us, I think, as we're looking at chapter six to kind of understand this first big th- picture. I, I didn't do notes today. Uh, I decided uh, not to put notes on the screen. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. So uh, there are no notes on the screen, but the first thing that if, you're, if you are a writer, it's fine. Uh, the first thing that you can see here that in God, God's uh, overflow of grace to them for salvation and to us. The first thing that, thing that we can see here by sending this prophet is that the Lord's word when it comes to us, comes to us first as bad news before it sounds like good news. And that's what the sending of the prophet is. It's reminding them just how sinful they are. It's reminding them why they're oppressed. They're oppressed because they uh, worship I idols. They worship gods. They, it says in six one, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then that's why God gave them over. And they didn't have a full comprehension of that. So God did this because, and so he sends the prophet. So he did this because he wants them to know why they're oppressed. He wanted them to understand that. Tim Keller says it this way. He sent them a prophet bef- first before he sends them a rescuer because the people are regretful, but they're not repentant. We see things like this where Paul mentions these types of things uh, being regretful but not repentant in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. When Paul writes to them in chapter 7, I'll start in verse 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so likely the people of Israel here were in some kind of worldly grief. They were regretful that all this oppression was happening, but they hadn't been led into repentance where they would turn from their evil ways, turn from their, their sinful ways. Whereas it says in verse 11, for we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. And so God wants the Israelites to be moved into godly grief so that they understand what's going on. So he sends them a preacher. He sends them a prophet to remind them of the bad news first. That they, as it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's the good news. But he sends them a prophet to tell them here 
Uh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. He rehearses and reminds for them all the good news, all the good things that he's done. In verses 8 and 9, I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from all the hands who have oppressed you and drove them out before you of their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But here it is. You have not obeyed my voice. He needs them to understand that they haven't obeyed. And so that's the first thing that we see in regard to this great salvation that the Lord extends to Israel and to us. When we first hear the word of the Lord, it comes to us as bad news before it sounds like good news. And that's normal. That's the way it should be. We have to understand and fully comprehend the bad news to fully get the good news. You've probably heard that a billion times if you've listened to any sermons before at all. Now, the second thing I want you to see in this, in this kind of half sermon that he preaches is this. There is mercy and grace. Uh, Before we get too bummed out about the bad news, we should look at also some of the things the prophet says, which is in verse 8b through 9, which is it's quite grace-filled. He reminds them of all the good that he's done for them. You can see, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppress you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. So he rehearses with them and reminds them reminds them of the good things that he's done. And so as we're looking at this great salvation that the Lord has get, given to us, the first thing obviously is that we, it sounds like bad news before good news, but we also hear, and the second thing we see is the Lord's word reminds us of the amazing mercy that God's shown to us. He reminds them of this amazing mercy. Uh, this text reminds them of how he's been good to them, how he's brought them out of the slavery, how he's delivered them from oppression, and equally for all of us uh, who are Christians, even in our continual day-to-day sins, disobedience through this process of sanctification. We're becoming more like Jesus, but still experiencing these Romans 7 Pauline moments. Uh, he reminds us also, the Lord reminds us of the amazing mercy and grace that he's shown to us in Christ, that he's given us a savior in Jesus Christ, being willing to go to the cross and die for us. And so he, he is continually like he is with them, showing us the amazing mercy he's given to you. So even though there's bad news, you need to know why you've been oppressed. You need to know that you've sinned. There's also good news. The Lord has been exceedingly good to us by giving us Christ. Exceedingly good. And here's where we're shown even more uh, how merciful God is, which I've already hinted to. There's no mention of real repentance here before them. You've not obeyed my voice. And then in the narrative, we just go, now the angel Lord came and sat under. So we don't hear any mention of real repentance of of Israel. Uh, There's no divine forgiveness granted by the Lord. Therefore, we, uh, in the next act, see the rescuer being risen up, this guy Gideon, uh, as an ex- we should see it as an extremely gracious act in the, midst, in the midst of persistent idolatry. So the people of Israel persist in their idolatry. They don't, when they cry out, uh, God doesn't see their repentance as genuine. And instead of just saying, you need to repent, and when you're ready, then I'll send the rescuer, he sends a rescuer anyway. The narrative helps us see that God is merciful. He goes anyway. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Azurite, while his son Gideon. And then we're going to see the story of Gideon's call. Now, Gideon um, enters, and as I've said, the book of Judges, as these res- judges or rescuers, the, the, the text never calls him a judge. And so I, I think he's. He's definitely a rescuer. You can, you can judge for yourself where he's an actually judge-judge. The text never calls him a judge, so I'm just going to call him a rescuer. He's a rescuer of sorts. But um, as we go through the book of Judges, I think there's a different, uh, as there's a downward spiral of depravity, there's kind of a downward trajectory of, uh, 
the character of these particular judges as well. And as you get towards the end, it, it gets worse. Gideon here um, is mostly labeled with uh, weak faith. So as we're looking at, at this, he's mostly labeled with weak faith because of his continual need for signs. He needs more signs. If this is real, if you can do this, if, if that's the truth, if, give me a sign. And so as we're going through, you'll see how he's going to want some signs. We're just doing chapter 6 today. But enter Gideon, um, and God's going to send Gideon as a rescuer despite their unrepentant hearts. He didn't have to do this, but he's going to overflow with mercy to them anyway. Now, let's just uh, answer kind of the side note, maybe elephant in the room. Um, in verse 11 and 12, you weren't thinking it's an elephant, but it was to me when I was studying. I was like, who is this guy? So the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord appears. Uh, verse 11 and 12, who is this angel of the Lord? The the commenters, commentant, commentators, commenters, one of those, they, they, they go all over the place. Um, and there's lots of thoughts. I, I think there's good reason to think that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. I think there's good reason to think this is the son of God appearing. Um, so uh, there's lots of reasons, but I could, I could give you at least one reason in this particular text that I see. We'll get to it in just a second. But um, if you go down as Gideon has been face-to-face with this angel of the Lord, uh, verse 22, I perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. Uh, Alas, O God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face-to-face. Uh, but the Lord said, Peace be you, do not fear. So as he's talked about seeing this angel of the Lord face-to-face, being face-to-face with the Lord should bring him to fear, and it does. Being face-to-face with God at all should bring us to fear, and it does. And so I think that th- there's lots of other reasons why we could go if we continue kind of moving out into the Old Testament. But nevertheless, I think this is a, uh, a, a vision of a pre-incarnate Christ that's showing to them. So anyway, back to the, back to the text. Um, the angel of the Lord came to them and sat to them and while his son Gideon was beating out the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. He's hiding it because the Midianites were taking all their stuff. And so we're just, we're going to do it in secret so they don't know everything we have. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So he comes to him and tells him two great things, two great things. One, the Lord is with you. This is a huge reminder. He's told them in, in, in verse 8 and 9 that the Lord was with Israel. And he's, he's also telling the Lord's with you. It's a good thing. He also tells them in verse 16, uh, whenever he tells them, I will be with you. So he comes and says, the Lord's with you. But then that second one is that you're a man of valor. And this has to be, it sounds like, a total surprise to Gideon. And he's also told this in verse 14 when he says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. So you're a might. You're a man of valor and you have might. He tells him these two things. Now Gideon, uh, when he hears those two things, disagrees with them consecutively. Once he disagrees with the first half in verse 13 and he disagrees with the second half of that statement in verse 15. So verse 13, when he says, the Lord is with you, Gideon disagrees with that. And so here's what Gideon says. Gideon says, please, my Lord, that's Adonai, if the Lord Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did the Lord did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So he says, if the Lord's with us, it certainly doesn't look like it. It doesn't seem like it's to me. Now, he's missing the picture, which is you've caused this by giving yourself over to idolatry. But nevertheless, he disagrees with the first half. But the Lord just goes into verse 14 and says, the angel of the Lord says, um, he turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And then 
The second half is, you're a man of valor. You, you can go and fight in this might. And Gideon disagrees with that in verse 15 by saying, please, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. Now, um, Gideon, in, in a lot of ways through this narrative, whoever this writer is, we think it's Samuel, is trying to m- model in some ways, um, at least the way the narrative is constructed, he's trying to resemble Moses. In a lot of ways. There's certainly some better things about Moses than Gideon. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the life and the way that Moses kind of conducted his life before the Lord. Some of the things that he says, Gideon in a lot of ways is, is modeled after Moses. And so we see him saying, I'm weak, I can't do it. In the same way that Moses said, I can't, I can't lead the people of the Lord, I can't even talk. Um, and we'll see some other resemblances later. But I just wanted to help you see that. So anyway, in verse 16, and he said, again... I will be with you. You shall strike down the Midianites as one man. So God promises that he's going to be with them. And so as we're seeing this promise that he's going to be with them, we see another great aspect of this salvation, not only that Lord gives to Israel, but that he gives to us. We've seen one, that the bad news sounds like good news. The good news sounds like bad news at first. Two, that even in the midst of uh, idolatry or rebellion or sin, the Lord still overflows with us great, amazing mercy. And now we also see that the Lord reminds us that he's always going to be with us. He's always going to be with us. He tells us this in Matthew 28. And he tells him here, I'm going to be with you. He says that twice. The Lord is with you in verse 12. And again, in verse 16, I will be with you. And he tells us the same thing in Matthew 28, that I am with you to the end of the age. So we have this great promise in salvation that after he saves us, we're not kind of dangling out there on our own, but instead he's promising that he's with us, with us through this entire life and with us through all eternity. The Lord is going to be with us. And this is, this is good. One commentator, one commentator says this, but I will be with you. Basically, God has nothing else or more to offer you. You can go through a lot with that promise. It does not answer your questions about details. It only provides the essential. Nothing about when or how or where or why, only the what or better, the who, but I will be with you. And that's enough. And that's enough. So this promise to him that the Lord will be with him is the same promise extended to us through Christ. And one of the great, great messages of our salvation is that the Lord promises that he will be with us. He promises he'll be with us. Now, as we keep going, we're going to see uh, where Gideon starts asking for the signs. But I will be with you if you only strike down the Midians as one man. Verse 17, and he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is uh, you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present or offering and set it before you. And so the angel of the Lord says, I will stay until you return. Now, uh, here Gideon wants a sign. What's, what's going on with Gideon needing these signs? What Why does he need signs? Does Gideon lack confidence in Yahweh? I would say at the very least, we could say he does lack confidence in Yahweh. Does does Gideon need to be sure this angel is actually speaking for Yahweh? Maybe it's just that he knows the promise, but he wants to know that this this angel speaks for God. And he's just not sure. Are you... Are you able to speak for God? Does, does Gideon lack faith when he asks for signs? Um, we'll, we'll see another sign in verse 36 and 40, the, the sign of the fleece where he, he asks for another sign. Is it, is it, on, uh, is it, is it 
helpful to help us understand. Maybe Gideon just has a really lack of faith. Is that what it is? Is it possible also uh, that Gideon just doesn't understand the work of the Lord because of their depravity, because of their ongoing sin, that he just needs to see if God's going to do these things, that God has the power to be able to do these things. So we can ask all these questions about what's going on in Gideon's heart, what's going on in Gideon's mind. I think at the very least, we can say he lacks confidence in Yahweh. At maybe the very worst, we can say um, this is a sign of really, really bad unbelief. At least in 36 through 40, one commentator will say that there's just, this isn't him just seeing a faith. This isn't Gideon needing a faith sign. This is Gideon having complete unbelief. He doesn't, he doesn't believe God is strong enough. So what do we make of this possible rescuer of Israel seemingly lacking faith in Yahweh? We know that this sign here will remove the doubts that Gideon has, which have been told in verse 13 and 15. God's not really with me and God... Uh, how can I do anything? I'm not really a strong guy. So w- this sign will remove those two doubts from, for, from him and help him walk forward. So Gideon says to him, uh, what I want you to do is show me a sign. So uh, don't depart from here. I'm going to go get an offering. I'm going to set it before you. Will you stay here? And uh, the, the angel of the Lord says yes. And so this is pretty crazy. The angel of the Lord must not have had much to do that day because in verse 19, it says, so Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them under the terebinth and presented them. Now we read that in verse 19, we can read it in, you know, 15 seconds. I'm like, oh, that shouldn't have taken very long. I just didn't take me 15 seconds to read it. But this took a long time. He didn't get to run to, you know, McDonald's and get all this. He had to go find a goat, kill it, make the cakes, etc. So he, he asked the angel and the angel knew, can you stay here for a really long time while I go kill all the animals, do everything I need to do, make this thing and bring it back to you. We do that. And the angel's like, okay, I'll do it. So it's pretty amazing that, that the angel is willing to bear with at least disbelief in Yahweh's power or complete unbelief while he does all these things for him to come and, and say, yes, I'll do it. And then he brings the, he brings the uh, food to him. Now, this is kind of funny because he does all this. And then all of a sudden, he just destroys it all. So in verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over him. And he did, what he, and he did so in verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff, what was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So all that work, and he just touches it, and he consumes it all with fire. And he's like, all right, why did I do all that? That's what I, was, I did a lot of work, man. And he just burned it all over. So, and then he's gone. So what's going on? Now, he burns it all up. And so he, he gets the sign. Nevertheless, he gets the sign here. And then in verse 22, we see this. Then Gideon perceived, that's also the word saw. It's used in the verse also, when, in the very end of, seven, of 22, it says, for now I have seen. That's the exact same word. So you could, you could say saw. When he says he perceived, you could also say saw. Then Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord. So this sign, uh, mostly for Gideon, was that he needs to know that this angel of the Lord speaks for Yahweh and has the power of Yahweh, uh, or at least the authority of Yahweh, that Yahweh, when Yahweh does things, that Yahweh is going to be able to do it. That Yahweh actually is totally omnipotent and able to do it. And it says, For now I've seen, alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face 
to face. I've seen the, Lord, the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, when we read that, we think, oh, that sounds cool. He, he realizes that he's seen the angel of the Lord face to face. As Western Americans, I, I don't think we feel the, get the full point of what's going on. What happens is that he realizes that he's seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It scares him to death. We read that and we're like, it scares him, does it? Yes, it scares him to death because it says the Lord appears to him and says, peace be you, do not fear, you shall not die. So in verse 22, when he realizes he's been face to face with the angel, he's scared to death and he thinks he's going to die. Uh, Here's how Dale Davis says, we Westerners do do not understand Gideon's agony in verse 22, this fear of death that he has because he realizes that he's actually been face to face with the angel of the Lord. Such talk is strange to us. We long to reach our warm hands through the printed page of the Bible and pat Gideon's shoulders and soothe him and say, don't worry, brother Gideon. God's not really scary like that. If you just had the New Testament, you'd understand. A pain perplexed Gideon would look at us, overcome uh, and say, a, a pain perplexed would look at, would come over. Let me read that again. Hooked on phonics didn't work at one point. A pain perplexed look would come over Gideon as if he had, he had just heard a theological ignoramus. And he said, this sort of talk is strange to us because we have no, for us, this, strange of talk, this kind of talk is really strange for us because we have no sense of terror and the awesomeness of God. For we think intimacy with God, this is where you, if you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. We think intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. At this moment, Gideon realizes that he's had a, a, a face-to-face moment with God and he's had this intimate moment with him. And for, it, should, it should surprise us. It should scare us and realize that it's a gift, not a right. And that's why he says, for we Westerners think that intimacy, in, intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable, indescribable gift. There's nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness. If we realize that God is holy then we would be fearing. But thankfully, Gideon knew better. Nothing is more assuring than God's, I will be with you. Nothing is more overwhelming than the fact that it is God who says it. It is only God who can speak peace to the trembling. And that's what he does. He sees him scared to death. And the Lord says to him, not the angel of the Lord, but the Lord himself in verse 23 says, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. You shall not die. And so he realizes he's not going to die here. And uh, it says, <clears throat> Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abizarites. The Abizarites are part of the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, so they're part of Israel. And so this message which it, for, for Israel, I'm sorry, Gideon is now, The Lord is Peace. I don't have to fear him. And in all of this we see... This, this whole section and this, this gracious salvation that he extends to Israel is that God is really with them. And in the same way that God is really with them, he's with us. He's with us. Now, the last thing we see Gideon doing is building uh, an altar. We see him building an altar to the Lord and call it the Lord is peace until this day it still stands. And then right after that altar is built in 24, we see starting in verse 25 through 32, God commands um, God commands Gideon, go destroy the false gods' uh, uh, altars. There's, there's, there's real altar for, for uh, Yahweh, and there's these fake altars to Baal, and God wants those fake altars to Baal to be destroyed. And so 
we see here that night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old and pull it down and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has uh, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord, your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah so that, or that you cut down so that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it, uh, he did it by night. So what we see here then, as we're looking at this, is that God does not want an altar to be built for him and there to be these false god altars for Baal and these false god altars for Asheroth as well. So he tells Gideon, I want you to go and I want you to destroy these uh, altars to Baal. Why does Yahweh make this uh, command? Why does he make this demand? Obviously, it's because God does not share his glory with anyone else. So as we see in this great salvation being extended to Israel, that's being extended to us, one of the great messages of salvation that's being told us is this. The Lord reminds us that he will not share his glory with anyone. He does not and will not share his glory with anyone. So the application for us as Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Israel's being told that right now. There's only one true God. You built the altar to me, build it up and destroy everything else so that no one in Israel is confused here that they can have both. They can have a a love for the real God and false gods, destroy everything else and let there only be altars to me so that everyone knows I'm the only God and I'm the one true God and everything else shouldn't even be alive or be here. He does this to help them understand that he does not share his glory with anyone. So the application for us then is this. We don't have actual structures in our yards built to Baal and Asheroth. But nevertheless, we have idols. And so the same message that's being told to them is being told to us. You cannot share the the glory of the Lord with false idols. And the same thing's being told us. You cannot share glory with your idol and with God. So, what idol is God telling you this morning to lay down? What idol is the Lord telling you to burn down to the ground, just like Gideon? Um, Tim Keller, in his commentary on Judges, said, A window into our idolatry is to see the things that we get angry about. Not righteous anger. Righteous anger is good. But other anger. Look at your life as you walk through the week, and when things don't go your way, the things that you get angry about, they're windows into your idolatry. If you have children and they misbehave in public and you get angry at them because the idol- your idolatrous heart wants everybody to think you look good and, f- and that you have perfect kids, that's an idol to you. It needs to be burned down to the ground. The Lord does not have, the Lord does not have room for our idolatrous hearts to worship other things and not just him. I, I, I have this all the time, even on Sunday mornings. If, if, Something doesn't happen right in the flow of the service. And I, I'm like, oh, why does that happen all the time? Like whenever, whenever we come out, I come out for the, for the uh, video and like for the first 15 seconds, there's just complete silence. And I'm like, all right, that's awkward. And in my heart, I can feel my, myself say, man, you know what I really want is I want the presentation on Sunday morning to be polished. So everybody thinks that we've got it together. That's idolatry. That's wicked idolatry. It's idolatry. I want for you to think that I have everything together. God's telling me, that doesn't matter. Don't share my glory, who you think you are, with anybody. That needs to be burned down to the ground. You can just look into your own heart, look into the window of your week, 
Not righteous anger. We should be angry about sex traffic and children being abused and, and abortion. There's things that we should really be uh, angry about. Um, racism. There's real things that we should be angry about. But there's other things that we get angry about that are windows into our idolatry. And the Lord's telling us here, what idol is it that you have that you want to share the glory with or that you want to hold on to? Here he's saying, burn that thing to the ground. Burn it to the ground and get rid of it. Now, in the story, in verse 29, the men of the town rose early in the morning. Behold, the altar of the bale was broken down. The asher beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered to the ground that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this? And after they searched and inquired, they realized it's Gideon. So in the story we hear, we see Gideon do it by night um, because he was afraid. We can, we can get on Gideon and get pretty upset at him for doing it at night because he's afraid. Or we can just say, God didn't say don't be afraid. And God didn't say, well, he did tell him not to be afraid. But God didn't say you can't do it at night at least. We can get mad at Gideon, but nevertheless, he obeyed. He wasn't necessarily heroic in his obedience, but he did obey. And sometimes if that's all you can muster up, the Lord's pleased with you and he's happy with you. That obedience doesn't have to be heroic. You don't need to Let your cape flap in the wind as you obey the Lord because you're the superhero. Um, The Lord, wherever you are, when you obey, is pleased with you. You need to hear that, that he's not beating you up and he's not mad at you. The Lord's not mad at you. If you're his child, the Lord loves you. He's never mad at you. He only sees you as holy and righteous. He sees you as his loving child. And here, uh, it's not radical heroic obedience, but nevertheless, it's obedience. And then we have the people of the town searching and inquiring. So someone here did some real detective work. Someone checked the security cameras. Someone knew who it was. They got Gideon's license plate. They knew it was him. And so they're going to Joash the next day. Hey, your son, your son was at our, uh, our, our altars tearing him down. <clears throat> and so Joash is going to stand up for him here. Somebody has figured out that it's him. You can see in verse 29, <clears throat> they said to one, who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, the detective work has been done. They They said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Joash, his dad, is pretty wise. He he says, basically, if these are gods, then they should be able to defend themselves. Right? Is what he says. But Joash said to all who stood, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Uh, Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal. That is to say, let Baal contend for himself because he broke down his altar. So Gideon has this new name, Jerubal, uh, that's going to be used some as you go through the rest of the narrative. But nevertheless, Joash stands up for him and says, well, if he's really a God, then he ought to be able to take care of himself. He ought to be able to defend himself. And therefore, it seemingly uh, keeps Gideon alive. Now, all the Midianites, verse 33, and the Amalekites and the people of East came together and they crossed over the Jordan and they camped in the valley of Jezreel. But, and here it is. This is an interesting little language here in verse 34. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet and the Azurites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. And they too were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they all went up to meet him. So they're being called in to go into this war, to this battle, to be able to fight. 
But before it happens, we see this, we see this uh, narrative of 36 through 40, and we can discern how we want in lots of different ways. But again, I think this is unbelief of Gideon. I think this is him getting nervous and scared. But nevertheless, it's pretty amazing. Uh, we've already had one sign. He's already told him that the Lord's going to be with you and that you are a mighty man of valor. He's, he gave the sign of this offering. He, de- he devoured it. He should, he should absolutely believe that Yahweh is strong enough. And then after that, he burned down the stuff. He's still alive. And then it says in verse 34, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And yet still in verse 36, we see this sign of the fleece happen where uh, it's a sign, as Daniel Block says, the request for signs is not a sign of faith, but unbelief. There's still some unbelief festering in Gideon's heart, even though he's been uh, clothed with the spirit. It says the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. This, by the way, this, this uh, Old Testament where the spirit comes upon somebody happens pretty often in, in Judges 3.10. That's on Othniel 6.34. That's here on uh, Gideon uh, 11.29. That's Jephthah 13.25. That's Samson. And so it's, it's highlighting for us that God is doing the work through these people and he's using his spirit to do it. He's, and I just thought this was pretty amazing. The, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And so... As we're looking at this last little section, even as we go into verse 36, where, I mean, this is, this is striking that the Lord answers this sign. I think it's striking that after everything that the Lord has done, God is still gracious to give him two signs, two signs. And you can see it in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you say, have you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, it's dry all around the ground. Then I'll know that you're able to save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And it was so. So he did that. The, the fleece had all kinds of water. It was dry all around. Uh, and when he rose the next day, he squeezed out the fleece. and He wrung it, enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And then Gideon said, okay, I know, <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I just got to test one more time. And this time we're going to do the opposite. As a matter of fact, this is where it's striking to me. Um, let not your anger burn against me. He knows what he's about to ask is wrong. And he says, let me speak just once more. Please let me test. That word test in verse 39. This, if you, if you remember back in 2.22, where it says, the Lord tested Israel. And verse 31, the Lord tested Israel. Now, when God tests his people, that's not sinful. But when people test God, that's bad. This testing that he does is told us in Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I mean, this is, if anything, bordering on, if not for sure, sinful of Gideon. I mean, this is sinful, unbelief behavior. God, you've done it once. Let me ask one more time. And he wants the reverse this time. This time was the fleece was wet and it was dry all around. Let's reverse it just to make sure it wasn't just a, you know, a freak thing. This time I want you to make the fleece dry and it wet all around. I mean, this is striking. But it says, um, don't let your anger burn against. Just test me once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece and all around the ground let there be dew. And the Lord did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only and all the ground was dew. It's, it's just the sheer grace and mercy of God that he does this twice. He certainly doesn't have to. And so when we see this, when we see this, what is God doing What is God doing here for Gideon? I think the only thing that we can understand is this. God is strengthening the weak faith of Gideon for the task. God is being 
unbelievably merciful and strengthening Gideon's weak faith for the task. So, the last little thing I want to point out is, as we see this in 33 down to 40, this great salvation that he's extended to Israelites and therefore to us, the Lord is, he clothes Gideon with the Holy Spirit and strengthen his faith, his faith for the task, and he does the same for us. He does the same for us. The Lord clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. He fills us, us with the Spirit. And continually, just like Gideon, is shown unbelievable mercy in his unbelief. He shows us that same mercy all the time so that our faith, our faith can be strengthened. So that our faith can be strengthened. So, application for us is this. Uh, how much are we depending then on the Holy Spirit? How much are we dependent on the Holy Spirit to do the work that God's called us? He's going to continually strengthen us in our weak faith. How much are we dependent on him? God's not ashamed here to stoop down and reassure us in our fears, just like he is for Gideon. Um, Tim Keller says it this way. He was very specifically addressing the places where his faith was weak and uninformed. Gideon's request was to help build up his faith, and God and his grace responded twice. He responded twice to him. That's amazing. So God seeks to strengthen the faith of Gideon, and he will do this for us as well. And so as we conclude, I just want to conclude with a couple things. Um, Here's what I want to uh, help you think about. If you're hiding, if you feel like you're in spiritual hiding, like the Israelites were hiding in their caves because their stuff was being stolen, hear this. God loves you. And God is, a lo- is the kind of God that's going to pursue you. He pursues them in the midst of unrepentance and, and deep rebellion. And at least, at least for sure, uh, disbelief in God's power, if not complete lack of faith. God pursues them. And so if you feel like you're in spiritual hiding, know this. The Lord loves you and the Lord is going to pursue you. That's good. That's really good. The next one is this. I want to cl- close with a couple more things. One, perhaps you have anger because of idolatry. And as we mentioned that, uh, and I said, look into the window of your heart, which you get angry at, and it gives you an idea of what your idolat- idolatrous hearts it, are. Um, I just want to encourage you, by faith, through the Spirit, put to death these idolatrous things. Burn these things to the ground the way the Lord has told Gideon to do it. And lastly, maybe you have weak faith, if not unbelief like Gideon, and you just need signs. Like he needs signs of the offering. He needs signs of the fleece. We have been given a great sign. We have been given a great sign, which is this. A bloody cross and an empty tomb. The Lord has demonstrated to us the greatest sign that we need in our unbelief. He's given his only son to us to die for our sin so that we can be completely forgiven of all our sin and now be given the righteousness of Christ. And so if you need a sign, look to the cross and the empty tomb. The Lord is telling you just how much he loves you and how much he wants you to know him. Let's pray. God, as we uh, continue now through worship, as we take the Lord's Supper, and as we worship you in in song, I pray that you would uh, remind us of this great faith that you've given to us, this amazing salvation that's been given to us, even though at first it sounds like bad news, it really is good news, and that you've given us your son, you've given us your righteousness, and you've closed us with the Spirit. And that you are uh, leading us in our places of unbelief and strengthen our faith continually. And you are gracious. Though we falter often, you love us more than we could ever conceive. And you're not mad at us. 
you're like a, fa- a good father who wants to reach down and guide us through this process of sanctification. You've already saved us completely in Christ and justification, and now you want to graciously lead us through sanctification. We thank you for this great story that helps us see just how much you love us. And we pray for your continued mercy and grace as we uh, pursue knowing your son. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue uh, in worship as we take...